Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1 for today's reading of God's Word. We'll be reading the first 11 verses. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together today as we come to this powerful and profound and important passage in God's Word. Father God, help us to be able to say amen to this passage and to the truth that it reveals to us. Our Father, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us today to help us to understand the meaning of these words and to convict us of their truthfulness that we might not just be hearers of the Word, But, Father, that you would continue the work of transforming us by the renewing of our minds so that we would become more and more doers of your holy word. Father, give us grace. Help your word to be the double-edged sword that it is and to pierce and penetrate us to the very recesses of our beings and expose all of the ways in which we need to continue to grow and increase in all of these ways that are godliness and righteousness and that please you. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts today as your people be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, after having spent the past several weeks in the book of Acts and in Acts chapter 15, as we've been meditating on the two great corollary and and complementary gospel doctrines of justification and sanctification that go together. This morning we're going to jump out of Acts 15 and here into the book of 2 Peter, where the same Apostle Peter, who was so clearly and succinctly articulating the gospel and its ramifications for living in Acts 15 
wrote to Christians here now who were living under the daily threat of persecution and of tribulation and of hardship and difficulty and affliction and suffering in this world. He wrote to them to encourage them as Christians who are justified by faith alone to persevere in holiness, to continue despite all of the difficulties that there are living for Christ in this world, that they needed to increase in holiness, not to flatline, not to plateau, not to peter out, not to slip away, but to increase in holiness, keeping the great hope of the eternal kingdom of heaven always in their sights, always before them. And so, today, Reformation Day, 2021, 504 years after we celebrate the day that Martin Luther spawned the great Protestant Reformation where these truths became so critically important in the life of the church. Today in our meditation on God's Word, Peter is going to help us to bring all of this great gospel reality together. All of this great gospel truth that we are justified by faith alone and that all who are justified are also necessarily being sanctified. Peter's going to help us bring it all the way to the full conclusion that the Word of God spells out for us, which is this, that all who are truly justified by faith alone are necessarily being sanctified as well and will therefore, by the power of God's grace within them, persevere in growing holiness until the very end when Jesus returns in glory and ushers us into his eternal kingdom forever. And that is our hope, right? That eternal kingdom of heaven. And that we'll get there, that we'll arrive, that we'll make it one day after our pilgrim's progress in this world. That's our only true hope. There's, there's nothing here, there's nothing in this present world that comes anywhere close to being able to provide hope for us in a lasting, permanent way. There's nothing in this world that is anywhere close to being worthy of anchoring our everlasting hope to. God's Word says that He has set eternity in our hearts. We're all longing We're all hoping for for value and meaning and purpose and significance and, and hope that is of a lasting kind, that doesn't just fade away like vapor in the wind. God has created us with with an insatiable longing for lasting eternal hope, and the only place that it is found is in Christ. And so. Consider these words of Paul in Colossians 1 and verse 27, where he says that the riches of the mystery of the gospel is that Christ in us is our hope of glory. There's no hope in this world. Our hope is in glory, and our only hope of knowing glory in eternity is Christ in us. And remember the words of Titus chapter 2 that we looked at last week. Paul says, Titus 2 verse 13, that while we live in this world, and while we endure the various trials and hardships 
that are attendant to life in this world, as we walk by faith and are, are being trained by God's grace for godliness, as we are being made zealous for good works by the grace of God, we are waiting, Paul says, for our blessed hope, which is what? That, that, that we're going to have happy experiences here in this world? That we're going to have, that, that, that we're going to have health and wealth and prosperity here under the sun? And victorious living in the here and now? That's not our hope. The blessed hope for which we are waiting in this fallen, sin-cursed, ephemeral world where everything is like vapor that transits transitory and, and that blows away and you can't take anything with you. The blessed hope that we're waiting for here is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. I want you to think about those words. We, we meditated on them at the end of our time last week, but I want you to think about those words of Paul in Titus 2, verses 13 through 14, and I want you to recognize the connection in those words between that blessed hope of, of glory, the appearing of Christ in all of His glory, that blessed hope that lies in front of us, ahead of us, that we're waiting for, think about the connection between that hope and the way that we must live our lives in this world as we wait. If we're to be confident of that hope, and if we're to realize that hope when Jesus returns... We're waiting for the appearing of, of Jesus' glory, Paul says, and then he says that Jesus is the one who has redeemed us from lawlessness and purified us for himself and made us to be zealous for good works. So you see the connection between what's coming and what we must be doing now if we want to get what's coming? The coming appearance of the glory of Jesus Christ when he returns will only be a blessed hope for those who have been redeemed by Him and who are therefore living their lives zealous for good works, free from lawlessness and in the pursuit of holiness. Not in sinless perfection, but in growing sanctification. But see, for those who are not pursuing sanctification in a growing and persevering manner all throughout their lives, what that means is that the faith that they have professed, they have not actually possessed. They've not really been redeemed. And for those who have not been redeemed, who have not been saved by the sheer grace of God through faith in Jesus alone, and so are not actually being transformed by the renewing of their minds and, and being conformed into the image of the glory of Christ from one level of glory to the next, for those who do not persevere in growing holiness to the very end, His appearance in glory when He returns will be the opposite of hopeful. It will be dreadful for all of those who have not been redeemed from lawlessness and sanctified progressively through the course of their lives and persevered until the end. Because when the Son of Man comes, He's coming to judge 
all of those in whom he will not find faith when he returns. Luke chapter 18 and verse 8, Jesus says himself. And faith in him, if it is true, genuine saving faith, always works through love. Galatians 5 and verse 6 says, True faith always bears the increasing fruitfulness of good works. James makes that so clear in James chapter 2, doesn't he? So here's your question as we jump into Peter here. Is your blessed hope in this world the appearance of Christ Jesus in all of his glory? And then secondly, are you living a life of faith and growing fruitful godliness and becoming more and more zealous for good works? Because those two questions are inseparably linked in God's holy word. So the great exhortation of God's word to all human beings, because we're all born in sin, the exhortation is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, right? Acts 16, Romans 10, 1 Corinthians 1, etc., etc. The word of God is clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And for all of those who do believe, the great exhortation is, live by faith. Romans 4.12, 2 Corinthians 5.7, Galatians 2.20. The life that I now live by faith in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, etc., etc. And living by faith means looking to the things that are eternal, the blessed hope, the everlasting kingdom, instead of living for the things of this world, right? It means seeing the things that are above where Christ is seated. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. It means putting off the sinful deeds of the flesh for which Jesus died and putting on the righteousness of Jesus. Colossians 3, like verses 5 through 15, describes that process. It means... Keeping our eyes fixed on Him, Hebrews 12, which we looked at earlier in the service, and running the race with endurance. Running in such a way, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24, as to win the prize. Don't just run to run, run to win. Run to finish and run to finish well. And in Peter's words here in 2 Peter 1, living the Christian life, And heeding the exhortation of God for all who have been saved by grace alone through faith alone means supplementing our faith in Jesus with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Because, Peter says, when those fruits of our faith are increasing in our lives we can make our calling and our election unto glory sure. And we can be confident that we are walking along the way by the power of God's grace that leads to the eternal kingdom of heaven. That's our passage. That's our text here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-11. through 11. So let's look at these verses here today as the Spirit would use them in our lives to make us zealous for good works. And to help us to persevere in godliness and to give us great confidence until the very end. So this is, of course, you can tell, the second letter that the Apostle Peter wrote. And he wrote it to a group of Christians. 
most likely both Jews and Gentiles, who had been scattered all around the Roman Empire, and especially all around Asia Minor, Turkey, because of the persecution against Christians that had become a growing threat and a growing reality in the Roman Empire of the first century during those times. Peter talks about suffering in these letters a lot. He talks about them suffering grief in all kinds of trials, 1 Peter chapter 1. And then in 1 Peter 4, he he paints the picture of fiery trials that Christians endure in this world that hates Christ. And he uses that language, fiery trials, in order to describe both aspects of the kinds of trials that Christians face in this world when we suffer. When we suffer with Christ, when we suffer for Christ, it's painful, like fire. But also, when we suffer with Christ and for Christ, it's purposeful, because our sovereign God uses the fiery trials to refine us, to purify us, like precious gold is refined in a furnace. Now, you know how it is, right? Living in this world where things are very often hard, where things are very often painful. If your hand brushes up against something that is searing hot, your instinct, your raw human impulse is to yank your hand away, right? When we encounter fiery trials in our lives, in our basic humanness, we have an impulse to withdraw from those things, to protect ourselves from those things, and that's normal. The problem is when that basic instinct of of humanity gets amplified, by our sinfulness and causes us to avoid holiness when the cost of it might be suffering. And in the Western world, we've, we've made protecting ourselves from suffering an entire way of life, haven't we? We try at all costs to insulate ourselves from pain, from tribulation, from discomfort. And again, there's something basic to our humanness that that very naturally doesn't want to suffer, of course. Even Jesus identified with that, right? In his humanness, in in Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, knowing what was going to come with the sunrise, he didn't relish the prospect of the anguish that he was about to endure. Take this cup from me, Father. And yet, he had no sin that would amplify that human instinct and drive him to avoid the suffering when it was the Father's will for his life. Not my will, but yours be done. Right? And so in Jesus' uncompromising commitment to the will of the Father, which was what defined his greatest joy in his heart and in his life, not comfort, but the will of the Father. And in that commitment to the will of God, Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before Him of pleasing the Father and of loving God's chosen people. Because in the horrific pain of the cross, there was sovereign divine 
purpose. Now, Peter has learned this lesson in his own life also as a follower of Jesus. Early as a follower of Jesus, remember, Peter went through that phase of letting his sinfulness amplify his human fearfulness in a way that caused him to try to avoid suffering by denying his Lord Jesus Christ three times before the rooster crowed early in the morning before Jesus was crucified. And then in the wake of that failure and denial, Jesus had mercifully forgiven and restored Peter on the beach in Galilee after Jesus' resurrection. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He betrayed him three times. Peter, do you love me? He said three times. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then Peter, feed my sheep. And what Jesus meant, and Peter knew it was, whatever the cost, feed my sheep. And there would be cost. There would be pain. But there would be purpose. Jesus was saying, you need to now be willing to bear up your cross, Peter. And follow me. It meant... No more compromising on the will of God for the sake of human preservation and comfort and convenience. Life in this world, which is groaning with sin, is not easy for anyone. And for Christians, living for the glory of Jesus in a world that is filled with and run by people who hate Jesus, means that there are zero guarantees of a life of comfort and a life of ease. And Jesus himself was very clear about that, wasn't he? In this world you will have tribulation. And what that means then is that we will always live with the temptation to let our sinfulness amplify our human fearfulness and short-circuit our faithfulness like Peter did on that morning when Jesus died. We're always going to live with the temptation and face the temptation to avoid the fiery trials and to compromise on the truths and the values that would bring fiery trials to us if we stood firm for the truths and values of God's Word in this world during these dark and evil days. We'll always live with the temptation to indulge in the pleasures of the world more than we devote ourselves to the kingdom of heaven. And so what we need as people like Peter and and as people like the people that Peter was writing to, what we need in this world is to be strengthened against those kinds of temptations so that we can live lives of uncompromising and increasing, growing holiness and faithfulness and fruitfulness to God, in spite of the fact that we know that doing that is going to mean that the world hates us more and more and hurts us more and more, probably. That's what the Christians living in the first century Roman Empire could count on, and so they needed this strength to persevere and to increase. So Peter wrote these letters to encourage suffering Christians in this world to persevere. To not fall away because it's too hard. 
to be filled instead with the only power that can cause us to actually grow in godliness despite the pressure, despite the pain, despite the cost, because the path of growing godliness is the only path that leads to the eternal hope of glory in the everlasting kingdom of heaven. I love this passage because honestly the wisdom that Peter speaks about here is so simple and yet it's so deeply profound. So we're just going to we're going to march straight through it here today. Mitch and I were talking before the service about how you could you could preach sermons on every single verse and in some ways every single word in these 11 verses. But we're going to try to fly through it and march straight through it today and take in the forest as we contemplate the trees. So verse 1, Peter is writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. He means the apostles by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, slaves, freemen, poor people, rich people, doesn't matter to Peter who reads this letter. If they have faith in Christ, they are of equal standing with Him before God because of the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. The righteousness, remember, that Peter had argued in Acts 15 comes from God to us and is imputed to us through faith, which is the only basis of God looking on us and declaring us to be righteous, and accepting us with the same acceptance that He has for His only begotten Son. The only way God says, I accept you, I love you, I don't condemn you, you are my child forever, is if we are covered by the blood and the righteousness of Jesus that comes through faith alone. So Peter's writing to people who believe that. He's writing to Christians who are in Christ who have been justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And his whole point in writing is to point them now as Christians to the only power that can preserve them in holiness and propel them along the path that leads to everlasting glory after the sufferings of this world. Because remember from last week, for those who are truly justified, being sanctified is not optional. And neither is being sanctified a merely passive experience in our lives that simply happens to us. Growing in holiness is requisite for eternal life, and it requires work that we participate in, that we do. And the great news, of course, is that every ounce of the strength and ability that we need to do that work comes from God Himself, doesn't it? Who is at work in us both to will and to do what is according to His good pleasure. That's such good news, isn't it? Isn't it good news that God doesn't just say, okay, I saved you, now get into heaven's all up to you. Don't blow it. He does say, growing sanctification and holiness and perseverance is required, but I'm going to give you every single thing you need to do it. That's such good news. That everything that God requires, God also provides. It's good news that we can pray like Augustine did when he said, God, command of me whatever you will and grant to me whatever you command. God always answers prayers like that in the positive. He will never leave you without what you need to grow in grace. Your cup overflows with what you need. 
It's good news that God does not only help those who help themselves, right? God helps the helpless. And Peter affirms this with these wonderfully simple and profound words right here in verse 3. God's divine power has granted to us, notice the past tense, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Isn't that good news? Jesus' own divine power as the Son of God, the very same divine power that enabled Him to be tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin, Hebrews 4.14. The same divine power by which Jesus despised the shame and endured the cross for the joy set before Him, that same power has granted now to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And of course, that means, that means two things by implication, doesn't it? It means, first of all, that there are no excuses when we fail to live in godliness. We can't ever say, well, God just didn't fill up my tank that day. Jesus just didn't give me what I needed today. Peter says he's already granted us, past tense, all things that pertain to life and godliness. He says, I want you to go and buy a billion dollar or something or other. Money's in the bank already. Gas is in the tank already. And so there are no excuses for not putting the pedal to the metal and thriving in holiness and persevering to the end. And it also means that when we do overcome temptation in our lives and mortify sin in our lives, and learn to walk and step with the gospel in our lives, and live by faith and in a manner that is worthy of our calling, when there's growing holiness that, that is characterizing our lives more and more, we have absolutely nothing to boast about, and God gets all the glory. How many, how many Christians are proud of their piety, right? And look down their noses at others, with this boastful kind of attitude of superiority that the Pharisee had who said, I thank God I'm not a sinner like that guy. You, you know you've had those thoughts and attitudes. Instead of the grateful humility that says with the publican, oh, Lord, thank you for having mercy on a sinner such as me. So, Jesus' own divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And it's a good thing because without His divine power, we, left to ourselves, would have zero hope of ever overcoming worldliness and sin and growing in godliness. And without the hope of growing in godliness, there is no hope of eternal glory, is what Peter is saying here. And how specifically has Jesus granted us His own divine power? How do we channel that power? How does it become alive in us? The rest of verse 3 and verse 4. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So that through them, these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It's just the same idea as we saw last week, especially from Romans 3 and Titus 2. A growing knowledge of Jesus and His holiness and His goodness and His grace leads to a growing confidence and assurance, which leads to a growing gratitude and love, which trains us for godliness and makes us hate sin, the sin for which He died, and makes us more and more zealous for good works and makes us want to live our lives in ways that are pleasing to Him. In the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God has infallibly revealed the glory and the excellence of Jesus Christ. And through a growing knowledge of Him, a deepening knowledge of Him, God has granted to us all of these precious and very great promises, right? Not earthly promises. Those are pathetic promises compared to the precious promises that are ours in Christ. We're not talking about Promises of health and wealth and and prosperity here in this world. Like the false gospel promises. We're We're not talking about the promises of imposters who tell you that God's greatest desire is for you to have your best life now. No. No, God's God's desire is for you to live with Him in glory and holiness forever. We're not talking about the promises of false. False preachers who, who purvey temporal, earthly, therapeutic hope and reduce the gospel of God's provision for people who are, who are lonely and sad and depressed or oppressed or impoverished in this world. God cares about those things, but that's not why Jesus died and that's not the precious promise that our amen in Christ Humanity's problems are so much infinitely bigger than than the things that we lack in this world. What mankind lacks is peace with the Holy God. And His promises are so much more precious, so much greater than the measly promises that some people want to cling to of health and wealth and prosperity and happiness and fulfillment in this world. Our God promises nothing short of eternal redemption from the infinite weight of our sin. Eternal life, eternal glory, eternal peace in the eternal kingdom of heaven for all who come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. Promises of earthly blessing and comfort can absolutely do nothing to drive you towards eternity. They'll just keep you more and more anchored here. But knowing that in Christ, all of God's promises to redeem us and save us and bless us eternally, those are gloriously fulfilled in Christ. And knowing that makes all the sufferings of this world not even worthy to compare as He keeps us longing for eternity and fills us with the divine power that we need to endure those trials and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And Peter says that this divine power of God that flows into our lives through the knowledge of the glory of Christ and how He has fulfilled all of the precious and very great promises of God towards us, through all of that we have become partakers of the divine nature. Now be careful because that doesn't mean that we become God. 
It doesn't mean that we partake of the things that distinguish God as the Creator from His creation, from His creatures. Right? It doesn't mean, of course, that we become omniscient or all-powerful or all-knowing or, or unchangeable or any of the other qualities that are unique to God. No, what Peter's talking about when he says that we partake of the divine nature is that by God's redeeming grace, we partake of God's goodness and righteousness and love, the, the holy character of God, which he epitomizes, and that we were made in his image to, to reflect, but that we fell short of and strayed away from in our sin. And remember that in our sin... As we were going astray from God, our condition of sinfulness was so desperate that God's word persistently uses the word death to describe it, inability to describe it. And it says things about it like this. This this is how God's word describes the sinfulness, the desperateness of sinfulness in the human condition. Every intention of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil all the time. Genesis 6, verse 5. That's the indictment and the diagnosis of human sinfulness that God's Word gives. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can possibly understand it? Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin or can the leopard change its spots? Then also can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Jeremiah 13 verse 23, right? The natural condition of human sinfulness that is common to all human beings from birth is so desperate that there is absolutely nothing that any sinner can do to change it to dig himself out of it, to make himself godly or righteous or holy. Left to ourselves, we will always be worthy of the wrath of God that pours down from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And left to ourselves, there's precisely nothing that we can do to change any part of that sinful condition. And so God, in His mercy, in His love, in His power, doesn't leave us to ourselves. He saved us. He raised us to newness of life in Christ Jesus. He caused us to be born again. He forged us into new creations by His own supernatural divine power. And this is what Peter means by He caused us to partake of His divine nature, His own goodness, His own righteousness as we become conformed into the image of Jesus. It's His divine power that empowers us to escape all the corruptions of this world that all come because of the sinful desire of humanness in this world. And so, because all of this is true, because all of this is real, because of the precious and very great promises of God that are fulfilled in Christ, because of the divine power that God has granted to us, all things pertaining to life and godliness by, because we are supernaturally new creations in Him, because He has made us able to escape the corruptions of this world, Peter says, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. 
Do you see that he means exactly the same thing as Paul means in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 10 through 12 when Paul says, because God is the one who is at work in you to will and to do what pleases him, you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Think of it like this. Let's say you parked your car near an active volcano and you got out and you were taking pictures and you notice, wow, there's a lot of smoke coming out of the volcano because you're an idiot. And so you're standing there wondering what that means. And then suddenly a a scientist, a seismologist, geologist, volcanologist, whatever he is, comes running by and yelling, it's going to blow, you got to get out of here. So you get in your car and you try to start it, but it's, it's dead, the car in every way that it can be dead, right? The, the battery died, the, uh, the motor blew, all four tires are flat. It's out of gas. And then say, the world's greatest mechanic comes by, and he puts four new tires on your car, and he drops a new motor in your car, and he fills the tank up with gas, and he puts in a new battery. Now what do you do? You go, out. Oh, now that I've got a new car, I'm good. I'm just going to sit here and watch the volcano blow, Right? No, 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 you got to hit the gas. you got to get going, right? This is what Peter means by supplement your faith with virtue. He means get going. Now that you're alive in Christ, you've got to live by faith in Christ. Or else the coming wrath of God is not something you will escape. Supplement your faith with virtue. The word virtue means... Excellence, And in fact, it's the same exact Greek word that Peter uses at the end of verse 3. Look at the end of verse 3 where he says that Jesus has called us to his own glory and excellence. The word means moral excellence. Jesus has called you to that. So, now that God's divine power has granted you everything pertaining to life and godliness, now that you've got a twin turbocharged high-bore V12 supercar motor under the hood, you can't sit there idling in this life. And you can't put around at five miles an hour in first gear. you got to punch it. you got to hit the gas. Supplement your faith, your faith in Jesus, your faith in the precious and very great promises of God. Supplement your faith with virtue, with excellence. And it means because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, because of who you are in him, you've got to live in full throttle obedience and holiness now. And that is the only way to escape the coming wrath of God and the only way to be assured of glory. And listen, listen. There's no, there's no speed limit to godliness and faithfulness. You, you, you can never go out. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to do too much too fast here, right? When it comes to obeying Christ. And so Peter says, supplement your faith with excellence. And then he goes on. And here's where we can literally preach full sermons for each one of these virtues that he lists here. But we're not going to. We're just going to fly. He says, supplement your faith with virtue and and your virtue with knowledge. Knowledge of, of his word. 
and His grace and His precious and very great promises and His law and His holiness in a, in a deepening measure. You can never learn too much of God's Word. And then supplement your knowledge with self-control, which means your ability to say no to your sinful desires and your selfish, prideful desires. You can never get good enough at that. And then supplement self-control with steadfastness, which means ever-increasing endurance, like a marathon runner develops over time. And supplement your steadfastness with godliness, which means living out this divine nature that you've been made a partaker of. It means, it means living more and more like Christ and less and less like you. And supplement godliness with brotherly affection. Think about um, Philippians 2 and that mind of Christ that looks beyond your own interest and in fact prioritizes the interests of others. You've got to get good at that and better and better at that. The, the kind of affection that produces compassion which drives a desire to serve others even when it costs me. We've got to get better at that. We're not, we're not good at that. We've got we to grow in this. And then you've got to supplement that brotherly affection with love. And the word love there in the Greek is that, is that great, awesome Greek word agape, which, which is so often used to describe the great, unconditional love of God. Where, where, where God didn't say, well, because you've been a good boy, then I'm going to give you my love. No, it's the love that says, you, you deserve my wrath, you deserve death, you deserve hell, and I'm going to give you life and freedom anyway. That's agape. The self-abasing, sacrificial love of God by which Jesus, the Son of God, came and died for lost, helpless sinners who were His enemies. We've got to foster that in our hearts and our lives. This love that undeservedly and graciously and mercifully grants peace. That's what the word agape means. It, It grants peace as a free gift, even when it costs dearly to do that. Are you, by the divine power of God in you, giving full throttle expression to all of those qualities in your life? Me either. (laughs) My knowledge and appreciation of God's holiness and truth and love has a long way to go. And I'll tell you what, it means a lot more than just reading and memorizing the words of Scripture it means knowing God in a personal way that prizes Him and that wants to please Him. My ability to say no to temptation and sinful desire has got a long way to go. My steadfastness, my endurance, my, my spiritual marathon legs, my ability to keep running when it's hard and not just go, I'm done and I just want to sit around and whine and be lazy. Right? I've got a long way to go. My godliness, my godly character and thoughts and attitudes have a long way to go. My selfless compassion for others, my unconditional cost-counting, self-forsaking, sacrificial commitment to meeting other people's needs no matter what, that's got a long way to go. We all have a long way to go in the pursuit of holiness as we measure the condition of our lives against the, the character of our Lord. And we all have been granted all 
things already that pertain to life and godliness in Christ. So, no excuses. And so Peter says, urgently and mercifully, realistically, if these qualities are yours, and they are, and if they are increasing, and they must be, Peter knows there's no perfection here in this life. So you've got to keep growing. And if you are, then these things keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no perfection in these things in this life. There's only the race that has to be continually run, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, with endurance, which means never being content with our current level of godliness. It means not looking around and going, I think I'm holier than most people in the room, so I can coast now. No. Never being content with our current level of godliness and never being complacent about continually increasing in godliness. Eyes on Jesus. Am I holy like He is? Not yet. Hit the gas. Right? Keep running. And as you run, always be confident that when you stumble along the way, when you fail and give in to sinful desire and temptation, when you fall down because you let yourself get entangled to the sin that, that, that clings so close, Hebrews 12.1, when you flag, when you, when you become weary and faint-hearted and say, it's too tough, I give. And when you start relying on your own strength instead of pressing on in God's strength, be confident. Even then, there is abundant grace, there is abundant strength from our compassionate Savior who then reaches down to you as you're either on your face by the side of the racetrack or or on your back in weariness. He reaches out and He says, in His own strength, get up. My precious child, get up and keep running and I'll run with you. And I'll never leave your side. I'll never forsake you. And so Peter says, verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities that he's listed, right, is so nearsighted, the Greek word is literally myopia, is so nearsighted that he is, he is effectively blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And there are times, aren't there? Plenty of them, where that verse describes us all. We've stumbled, we've fallen, we've become weary, we've become complacent, we've become so focused on what we want or the troubles and the trials that weigh us down in our lives that, that like someone who is so nearsighted that they're functionally blind, we lose sight of the precious and very great promises of God and of the great mercy and love of Christ and of the divine power that has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Those things are literally staring us in the face. It's all right here, spelled out. They're ours in Christ Jesus. They will train us for godliness. They will make us zealous for good works. They will empower us to run with endurance. And sometimes we lose sight of them. And so we need to regain sight of them through faith 
and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look away from yourself. Look away from the world. Look to Him. We've been cleansed, Peter says, from our former sins. That's that's the reality. Those those old habits, those old desires of sinfulness that, that still tempt you, they don't have any dominion over you like they used to anymore. You're not in bondage to them anymore. Don't act like you are. Don't act like they're your boss. Don't act like they're your authority, your master. They have no authority to make you obey their sinful passions anymore. You have a new master now. All of the sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness and idolatry and anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and dishonesty, all of those kinds of things that Paul identifies all throughout the New Testament that God condemns all throughout His Word, Christ died to cleanse you from those things and to free you from bondage to those things. Sin's got no dominion over you anymore, no authority over you anymore, and and yet you yield to it sometimes, and so do I. And when we do that, we're acting like we have to. Like it's our master, like we have no choice. We're acting like people who have forgotten that in fact we've been cleansed from former sins. We're acting like former slaves who have been redeemed. Our our freedom has been purchased from that former master by the precious blood of Jesus, our new master, but we still bow. When the old master says bow, we still say yes sir and we bow. You've got a new master now. Don't don't bow to the old one. He's bought you. He's purchased you. He's freed you. Don't forget who you are. Don't lose sight of your Savior and your Lord, Jesus Christ. When the old master screams at you to bow, and your heart instinctively wants to yield, you've got to let the voice of your new master sing louder in your heart of His love. His mercy, His grace, His precious and very great promises, His divine power, the blessed hope of His future appearing, the eternal eternal inheritance that is yours in Him. And listening to that song and your eyes fixed on Him and your heart tuned to His grace, you've got to put your your faith in the divine power that He promises and that's how you can lay aside the encumbrances of sin and temptation and run with endurance. Full throttle, no excuses until the very end, until you're either dead in this world or He returns in glory. And this is how, Peter says, right? Getting back up in the strength of His grace when you fall, increasing in godliness, never being content to to plateau and become complacent, supplementing your faith and salvation by grace alone with ever-growing excellence and godliness looking less and less like you every day and more and more like Christ, always relying on His divine power more in your life, accelerating so as to always realize new heights of godliness. This is how you will make your calling and election sure. How do I know I'm saved by grace? Because this divine power is propelling me forward. Verse 10. That's how you'll make your calling and election sure. The more times His mercy picks you up off the ground and you keep running and you keep striving in His strength instead of wallowing around in the muck of sinful passions that He's already cleansed you from and the guilt and the shame that He bled and died to vanquish and the pride that He laid down His own life to crucify, 
The, the, the more times you claim the victory that Jesus won over sin and death and guilt and shame and just keep running by His strength and increasing in godliness, the more sure you will be that His grace really is sufficient for you. Remember when you learned to ride a bike? I don't know, maybe it was different for you than me. I didn't have training wheels. I just had the dad who, who grabs the back of the seat and runs along holding the bike up. And he's pushing and I'm pedaling and my legs are too weak. And I'd look back and I'd go, he, he really is pushing me. I really am going to get there. And of course, he lets go and you fall and helps pick you back up. And The more confident that you become in the precious and very great promises of Christ and the power of God that's sanctifying your life as you grow in grace, then the less luster the things of earth will have for you, the less tempting the voice of sinful passion will be to you, and the more zealous for good works you're going to become, and the closer to glory you're going to get. If you practice these qualities, Peter promises in verse 11, you will never fall. If you let God propel you along the path of growing, increasing godliness, you won't fall. If the divine power of God is what's driving your life and through all of your imperfections and failures as you continue to get back up and grow in grace, your kind, merciful Savior is never going to let go. And His unceasing grace, His unfailing love will lead you home to that eternal kingdom of heaven. This is, this is the way, this is the only way that you will have richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Not by sitting around in ungodliness for which Jesus died, in impurity that He died to cleanse you of, and not growing. You're not gonna, you, you'll only prove that you never trusted Him at all. But so long as you continue to stand and run with endurance along this way of increasing godliness that's fueled by the divine power of sovereign grace, there will be richly provided to you by your heavenly Father an entrance home into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when you get there and see Him face to face, then everything that you worried about so much here in this world, all the trials, all the afflictions, all the tribulations and sorrows and sufferings that you had to endure in this life, that you persevered through in growing holiness by the power of God's grace, all of it will seem really, really, truly like just a momentary light affliction in comparison to both the quality and quantity and longevity eternally of the glory for which He's preparing you. So, as we live in these last days, as we live in these dark and darkening times, press on. Don't fall away from the only path that leads to glory. And when you stumble along that path, by His grace, get up. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't be nearsighted. Don't be blinded to what He's freed you from and given you and and provided you with. Keep running. Even when you think you can't, He will give you, like Peter, getting out of the boat and walking on the water, the strength that you need to trust Him and to run the race 
and to finish the race and to finish it well. And by His divine power in it, in you, you will finish. You will enter His everlasting rest, which a countless multitude of other faithful saints have already entered into, like all the people in Hebrews chapter 11. People of whom this world was not even worthy, it says there. People who trusted God even when they were being sawn in two and fed to lions and the whole world was against them. When their strife was fierce, when their warfare was long, they stood firm. And you can too on Christ who is your solid rock. They fought faithfully in the mighty fortress that is our God. They stayed strong in the strength of His might. So stand firm in these evil days and run hard and fight well and increase always in godliness and grow always in grace and be assured that the entrance to that everlasting rest lies before you. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, would you give us conviction and would you give us confidence and assurance that we belong to you, that your precious and very great promises are all yes in Jesus Christ and that through faith in him we truly are redeemed and that by his divine power you have granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And would you help us to hate our sin even the sin of complacency and apathy and self-pity? And would you help us to run and strive, pedal to the metal, in the power of your strength for the sake of your glory and to grow in holiness and effectiveness and fruitfulness in this world, even when it seems it's impossible for us to stand against the odds and against the darkness? God, would you make your light to shine through us as we trust you and serve you and glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand up together. I love this song for all the saints. We don't pray for the saints. They're already there. They're already fine. We pray in commemoration of them, and we pray for the same grace to live like they lived, and to arrive home where they are. So let's sing this morning with loud and thankful voices to our God for all the saints from whom their labors rest. Let's sing.